We're going to talk some about the fear motivations tonight. Uh, and also, kind of along with that, I'll share some, as we're going, a few other things about the grace motivations. Now, what I want you to remember that we said last night, these are how the way that God motivates you to express His love. These are not ministries. So when you're motivated by prophecy, you're not ministering as a prophet. You're not prophesying. You're motivated to see what the truth is, what's right and wrong, and to speak it, and it brings conviction. But that's not prophesying. It's not a prophet. When you're motivated by teaching, it's not being a teacher. Don't get these things mixed up. When you're motivated by ex exhorting, it's not that you're up preaching. It's not what it is. When you're motivated by serving, it doesn't mean you're a deacon. If you're motivated by leading, it doesn't mean that you're a leader or an elder. It means you're motivated to organize, administrate, and coordinate. Okay, if, if you get that in your mind, it kind of sets you free from getting mixed up in this. Now, the other thing about this, the Scripture basically tells us to concentrate on our gift of grace. If you concentrate on that, in whatever the area of ministry God places you in, then God determines what all the manifestations are. You know what I see people doing? They concentrate on manifestations or ministries. And they're chasing after a ministry or they're wanting a certain manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And if, if you study that whole thing out, you'll discover that's not what God says. Now, you and I have the uh, opportunity for all of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit to operate through us at the direction of God, and the purpose is for those who have the need. Now, for instance, let me, let me tell you what can happen. Now, let's say here's an individual who says, what I want is the manifestation of healing. And so what I want to do is constantly have gifts of healing that work in my life. And so he prays for it, prays for it, determines that's what he's going to do. And so an individual comes to his house, and he has been uh, four or five days without food, and he's very hungry, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm just starving. Could, could you give me some food? And he says, well, no, I can pray for you for healing. But, no, if you want food, you'll have to go someplace else. Now, now, the, now, doesn't that sound silly? Well, what that is, is it's not love, right? All of these operate by love. And that's what it basically says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. When you have 13 meshed in between there, it says all of this operates by love, and that's how you function. The motivation you and I have is the love of God. And so if we're wanting to do what's the most loving thing, then it's what's benefiting to others, then the Holy Spirit is free to manifest whatever needs to happen at that point in time. And it's the same thing with a ministry. If my desire is to have a particular ministry, I've got the wrong view of what it is. Ministry is not mine, it belongs to the Lord. You know, it's an, an interesting view that the Chinese have that somehow we need to begin to understand. 
is that none of them look at ministry as belonging to them. It's God's. And therefore, when uh, many of them come to the Lord, I, I, let me shock you just a minute. Now, there in China, there are a million people being converted every month in China. 30,000 a day are being baptized in China. Okay, now who are all of the workers that do all of this? Who are all of the leaders? Those that were Christians a few weeks before are leading those that have become Christians now. 70% of all the Christian leaders in China are women. Most of them are under the age of 25. So it's, it's kind of a shocking experience to meet somebody who's 17 years old and discover that she is responsible for 70 churches. Uh-huh. Or this woman who's 20 years old and she's responsible for 800 churches. That kind of blows your whole view of what, what happens. And guess what? She didn't go around trying to get this ministry of doing that. All she was doing was functioning in the love of God. She happened to lead these people to the Lord, who led these to the Lord, who led these to the Lord. She was the one who was most available, who had the time and the desire and the energy to expend to minister to them, and guess what happens? Pretty soon she's in charge. Now, see, God looks at that as his, not particularly ours. So uh, in China, if somebody is arrested, and they're put in prison for their, their faith, some of the, the leaders, they go, well, praise God. God will raise up others to take over this ministry because it's his. And they go into prison, and guess what? They say, guess what? Now I have a prison ministry. <laughs> and, and it's true. Because if they're there for any period of time, they lead all the people to the Lord. Really. And after a while, they kick them out because... They've led everybody to the Lord in the prison, <laughs> including the guards. And so they get new people in, and pretty soon these people are gone. All of the Christians that were there are usually gone. Now there are all of these non-Christians that are in prison again, and then guess what? God brings somebody else into the prison ministry again. And so they, they look at it entirely differently. They, you know, they see that whatever ministry they're doing was started by somebody else that has gone to a different area or a different place. And when they leave, somebody else will come to take over that ministry because it's the Lord's. They don't look at it as an ownership thing. See, now that's a little different than the way we do it. So what I want you to begin to see is you're concentrating on discovering how God's love so works in you that it motivates you to express that to everyone around you. That's the grace gifts. That's the motivational gifts. And if you concentrate on fulfilling that, then let's say, for instance, let's say you have a uh, grace motivation of mercy, but God puts you in a teaching ministry. You know what you do? You use that teaching ministry as an opportunity to express how people are to have harmony and unity and how they're to learn to be aware of other people's feelings and how to minister to them. That's what they begin to do in their teaching. 
And then you know what the Holy Spirit does? He begins to manifest his presence amongst them with prophecies, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, healing, as is needed and he sees will be best for the whole group, even through that. Well, that's, that's the idea. So that's what God likes to do. And guess what? You don't have to be a particular motivation to have a particular ministry to have particular manifestations. See? Whatever your motivation is. But let's say that, let's say that you see somebody operating in a very powerful way in a ministry and you decide that's the way you must do it. And therefore you, you watch how they function and how they're motivated and you try to imitate that, you flunk. What you flunk is trying to be them. You've never flunked God. What you did is you're trying to imitate their, their ministry through their motivation. And instead, if you allow God to motivate you the way that he's made you, your ministry may be much different and have a greater impact than theirs would. See? Okay, now, a thing that begins to cause problems with our seeing what our motivation is, or even expressing it, or abusing it, has to do with the fear, and the fear of motivation. Now, how many of you realize God is not fear, right? Now, who is the author of fear, you remember? Satan is the author of fear. <laughs> well, I thought it said the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. Is that right? Okay, let me, let me give you a little clue on this. The, the word fear and faith are very close together within the Hebrew and the French language. And I mean the Hebrew and the Greek language. They're very close. Even in French, there's a similarity. But the Hebrew and the Greek language are very close together. And as a matter of fact, fear can actually be described as faith in the negative, is what fear is. It's faith in the negative. You know what? None of you have fear right now at the present situation that you're in. But you have fear about something that will occur in the future. Based upon usually things in the past that have happened to you or that have happened to other people that you know or that you've read about or that you've seen on newsreels or in television, and all of those things feed into you, things that have occurred that could reoccur. And so here you are now in the present. You're not facing it. You know, you know if you're in an automobile accident, at the time of the accident, you're not in fear. You don't have fear at the time of the accident. Afterwards, you do. You're sitting there like this, thinking of what could have happened and what may occur again. But at the time, that's not there. So you need to understand that fear is not a present emotion. It's always having to do with the future based on the past. Not even your own sometimes. Now Satan knows that, so guess what he does? Why does he want you to have fear? Because he doesn't want you to function in faith in what God's directing for your future based on what God tells you and has dealt with you in the past. Your past experience with God brings trust. Now, if you have a problem with trust in the present, what you have to do is tell God and review what he's done for you in the past. 
That's all you have to do. I have to beg for it. Just begin to review what God has done. When you get through in about 10 or 15 minutes, you'll find out that you're full of trust. Because the only one that can give you trust is God. Trust is a gift. And God is the only one that's trustworthy. If I try to put trust in myself, guess what? I don't make it. I fail. If I try to put trust in Donna, she won't live up to all my expectations. And in Jeremiah 17, it says that cursed is the man who trusts in man. You bring yourself into a place where a curse begins to operate. But it says, blessed is the man who trusts in God. And then it begins to tell you what the blessing is that comes into your life. Okay, so that, that's, that gives you the foundation to operate in faith now looking at the future. Now what Satan tries to do is distort that so what you and I always see in the future is negative. Now Donna was just telling you a little about it with her. Now, I, I never have fear that way. My fear operates differently. And for a long time, I said, I don't have fear. Because I didn't have any about the things that she would talk about. No, mine's different. My motivation of fear is different than hers. And if we're not careful, we don't see that. Now, how, how were you born into this world? Through parents, right? Did they have any problems? Did any of them have any fears? Guess what? All the fears they had, you inherited. Not just genetically, but spiritually. All of the circumstances and situations that you were born into that brought pain, suffering, agony, doubt, guess what? That puts a deposit in you that Satan is banking upon and promoting so that fear is what he begins to draw out of you in crisis times. Now, 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul is speaking to Timothy and he said, Timothy, God is not the one who gives you fear, but he gives you love, power, and a sound mind with self-control. So where did this fear come from? come from the world that you were born into, the family that you were involved with, the culture, the background, the educational system, all of the authority figures, relatives, friends, and enemies that you've had. The world. <laughs> Remember in Romans 12, 1, do not be squeezed into the world's mold. Part of that is the fear that it promotes. Now, another word that goes along with fear that's a derivative of it is worship. Do you know what fear is a form of worship? Now, worship means whatever you focus upon and whatever you give uh, worth to becomes something that is a god in your life. Now, if you have a fear of something, what happens? You focus on it. You give worth to it. It begins to control some things about your life. It becomes that god. So fear is related to worship in that sense. Now that's why Satan is involved as the author of fear. He wants that. 
He wants your focus of attention. He wants the worth and the value. And he wants opportunity to begin to guide you and to control your life in some way. Now, there's another proverb. I mean, Proverbs uh, 29.23 said that uh, the fear of man is a snare. Because if you fear man, you begin to get yourself into a trap. That's utilized. There is another proverb. I, for, I forgot to look it up. There's another proverb that says, choose you this day who you will or what you will fear. Which begins to point out to us that we have an opportunity to make a choice about where we will place fear. Now, you may not be able to stop the emotion of fear, but you can choose where to put it and what to focus it on. And that becomes exciting because your life can begin to change. Okay, now, because of that, you and I grew up in a society that was based upon fear. Part of fear has to do with performance. Any of you have to perform to be accepted? To be approved of? How about in school? I mean, if you don't perform, you get an F, right? Aha. Now, our whole society is based upon that, which is a fear motivation. So everything that's happened to us from the world's point of view is motivating you to succeed, achieve, or accomplish, or to be quiet, to change, to fit in on the basis of fear. Now, but when you were also conceived, God placed within you all of the ingredients for grace to motivate you, love to motivate you. Now, when you're born again, there's a key that unlocks this door and it begins to operate. But now you still have some of this fear that's motivating you. So here you and I are, we've, we've been born again, come into the kingdom of God, been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but you're not totally free of all of the fear that is motivating you. That's what you need to understand. Part of what you and I are going through in the Christian life is called the transformation process. We are being changed from one degree of glory to another. You remember that? being changed from one... Well, what is that? That's one degree of the manifest presence of God in my life to another. So some of the areas of fear that have been ruling are being changed as this, the presence of grace and love ruling are being built up. So sometimes you and I need to discover what is it that's motivated us. And so that, that's what I've, I've shared with you these Four basic fear motivations. And as you begin to see yourself in this a little bit, you'll have a handle on basically an avenue that Satan has been manipulating your life and harassing you with. And you begin to see how you can be set free from that and how you can allow more of the love or the grace motivation of God to rule within you. The more that rules, the less this rules. Okay? So we'll just start out. The first, you know, I've used this acrostic of F-E-A-R. First fear motivation is the fatalist. Okay, what it, it's a fear of failure, but it's also the fear of a loss of accomplishment. Fear is a fear of a loss of something. See, 
So this is a fear of loss of accomplishment. And here are some words that can describe this fatalist. Futility, faulty, feeble, fabricate. This person believes they're a failure. Now, there are degrees of this. I'm giving you the extreme. They believe that they're a failure. They don't believe they have any ability. They don't believe that, that anything they do will succeed or it will be good enough. So why should I do it? It won't be good enough anyway. Why try? It won't be good enough. I can't do it anyway. I'm not going to do it. So they have a, a hard time receiving from other people because they think, well, that's because they're good enough and I'm not. It's easy for them to say this, but the, you know, I, they can do it, but I can't. And so they'll always compare themselves with other people and say, well, they're doing great, but I can't do that. Now, an interesting thing about this person, they have usually have a lot of ability. Especially they have a lot of ability with doing things with their hands, but they don't believe it. If you tell them, they, they, believe, they don't believe you see the truth. As a matter of fact, the more you give them praise, the worse they get. The more you tell them how wonderful they are, the more they try to leave and not get around you. That's, I mean, it's true. Um, what happens, they believe that if you're uh, praising them, telling how wonderful they're doing, that you're giving them more responsibility. They think now you're expecting them to do all of this all the time and get it right all the time. And to them, that's too much responsibility. They can't handle that because they know they're going to fail anyway. Therefore, they will leave. Now, I remember, I remember a, uh, a young man I was counseling with, he and his wife, and she said, well, I don't understand him. And it was evident. She said, uh, he'll go get a job and he won't go to work. And as we begin to talk, it becomes very evident this fellow is an extreme fatalist. Extreme. Now, what he did, he had, he had just gone and gotten a job. And it was just a great job for him because it, it was in training. So for the first three months, they said it doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how you do it, uh, this is training. And he goes, great, wonderful. No responsibility whatsoever as far as he was concerned. Well, the first day he was driving to go to work and he heard something in the engine, didn't go to work, went home, tore the engine apart and fixed it. Well, you know, I got a call from the guy's boss and he said, where is he? I go, I don't know. I found out, well, he was home fixing his engine. Now, he took three days to do it. He didn't think it mattered if he showed up for work or not. I mean... You know, it's just training anyway. And besides, he heard that noise and he thought he might as well do something about it then. But if I'd have told him how great a job he did, I mean, he tore the engine down, fixed it, put it all back together. If I'd have told him how wonderful he did, he said, oh, it's bad, I better take it apart and look at it. Something's wrong. Anyway, the guy went to work. And uh, he's getting minimum wage. And he just... I mean, he just does wonderful. As a matter of fact, he, uh, he'd been there about a month and a half, you know, feeling no responsibility, outshining everybody. And what the machine that he was working on broke down and he repaired it. 
Well, everybody was elated about this because nobody else there could repair this machine except the owner of the plant. And when they report all of this to the owner, he comes down personally, makes a big deal out of what this guy has done in front of everybody. They said, we want to promote you to a foreman, and we're going to give you a $10 an hour raise. He quit the next day. <laughs> and went and got a job for less than minimum wage and didn't show up for that either. Now, if I could have gotten to talk to the, the boss before he did this, I mean, they could have saved this thing. Now, what could have happened? He could have come down, said, oh, I see you repaired that machine. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks, but next time it happens, just call me and I'll take care of it. You don't need to do it. This guy would never have called them again. He would have done that from then on because he felt no responsibility. Didn't think they were waiting for him to do it, expecting it. But as it was, he felt like, oh, no, I'm going to fail again. I can't achieve this. They don't know what they're doing, so I'm leaving. Now, you know what else happened? His wife was pregnant. <laughs> so he still didn't have a, a job that he thought was good enough. And so now she's four months pregnant, and he says, you know, uh, I just can't find a job around here. Uh, give me some of the money we have left. I'll go down to Los Angeles, and I'll find a job. Well, he did. He left. And after she had the baby, and she was home from the hospital for two months, he called back up and said, well, I still haven't found a job here. Uh, you're back home. Huh? Everything's okay? Yeah. Okay, well, send me some money, and I'll come back. He couldn't stand the fact that she was going to have the baby. He felt responsible, and he knew he had messed it up, so he left. Now, this is an extreme fatalist. Now, you may have some area of a fatalist fear where you have a fear of a loss of accomplishment or fear of failing. And you may have this thing that keeps telling you that whatever you do, it won't be good enough, and it won't last. And it doesn't matter what you do, don't try. Well, that's a fatalist fear. Okay, if Donna could share with you, that's something that she had battled with a lot. Now, she up here, <laughs> she's singing the song, she writes this song. Anytime she'd do that, I'd talk to her and say, that's no, not any good. Not any good. I'm not going to sing it. Nobody will like it. It won't help anybody. You know, why do it? So she had to overcome that and had to let the Lord show her that was a fatalist fear. Not only that, we'll go to these different countries and guess what happens? Uh, the Lord, you know, inter interestingly enough, we'll get in a situation. Usually she and I pray for people a lot together, do a lot of uh, uh, personal ministry of healing or whatever. We get in some of these countries and too many people come and need ministry, so guess what happens? I get over here with 50 or 60 people, and she's over here. And they're all lined up for healing. And she's going, oh, no. What if I pray and nothing happens? Yeah, you can pray and it'll happen, but if I pray, nothing will happen. <laughs> so you know what happens? She prays and people get healed. And then Satan tells her, well, it won't last. <laughs> See? So then, I'm, but the... That's the battle that's there. 
and she wins that thing. And I've watched over the years as this thing is greatly, greatly diminished in, in the scope of what it's done and in the area of the depth of it in her life. So that, that's a fatalist fear. Okay, the exasperator fear. This fellow has a uh, fear of a loss of position or fear of a loss of recognition. Here are some of the words that may des uh, describe it. Enmity, enslave, energetic, enforce, enrage, argue. This person, if they're in a position of authority, they may actually enslave people, or they feel like they're enslaved by this person's authority. This person seems to need to prove their position. So what happens is that they will, uh, if they're a friend of yours, and you meet, you meet them that, that day, they will start an argument with you. Now, it doesn't matter what you say, they'll disagree. If they're, if they're a, an exasperator, they exasperate you to no end. You, I, I remember when I was in uh, seminary, and one of the things, I had a, a job where I had to uh, deliver uh, building materials all around the state of Missouri to lumberyards. And there was one particular lumberyard that I'd go to it didn't matter what I said, this guy disagreed. I mean, it wouldn't matter. So I remember I came one day, and it was snowing out kind of like that, and it was nasty and everything. And I said, well, boy, it's really a cold, nasty day. He said, what do you mean it's a great day? Five minutes later, somebody else came in and said, you know, it's a great day. He said, no, it isn't. It's a nasty, awful day. <laughs> now, what has to happen? This individual has to, in his mind, Prove to you what his position or his recognition is with you, you know, that day. He had to prove to me what his position was. Once he got that settled with me, hey, we were buddies the rest of the day. But he had to reprove it the next day. Now, what you can do is let this person win the argument that they start with you, and they always will anyway. And see, they like to argue. But if you tell them that, they'll say, no, I don't. <laughs> I had a friend of mine in, in uh, seminary was like this. And uh, he said, you know, he said, we just had a great reunion. He said, all our family got together. We argued all weekend. <laughs> he said, oh, it was great. And I said, you won all the time. No, I didn't. I said, well, not at first. Now, you know, the, the other thing that you can do with this individual is you can give them sincere, I stress, sincere, accurate compliments on their position or their strength. If you do that, they don't need to have an argument with you in order to prove to themselves that you recognize their position or their strength or their ability. But I guarantee you, if these comments and compliments that you give them are not accurate, and sincere, they'll argue with you. They won't accept them. They'll think it's a lie that you're doing. Now, I've seen a lot of these people, in um, men, a lot of them like to get into construction things, real physical things. And the reason is, is because when they're doing this, 
they can do twice as much. Now, I've been around a lot of construction sites in big cities, and they have these big fences that go all around them, and then they have holes in them. These are motivation holes. And so when people go up and look at them, these guys watch, and they pick up twice as much. And they work twice as hard. And it proves. They're <laughs> when, when, we were in, when we were in Napa, we first moved there. We moved into a house that was called the Yellow House of Jesus. And it was this ministry house. This was about in 1974. And um, it was sort of a halfway house discipleship training house. I don't know who thought this up. But we moved into this, and Donna got to be in charge of all of the cooking and the cleaning in the house. There were 25 people ages 65 to 18. All of them had, had been dropouts in life in one way or the other and had just come to the Lord. They were saved, but that was it. They didn't know how to live, didn't know what to do, and so now I'm going to do all of the counseling. Oh, this is fun. <laughs> and we, we had an interesting time in this. Learned a lot of things. So there was one uh, fellow that came into the... an ex-Marine. <laughs> and he was a real exasperator. And uh, <laughs> he worked in a, in a roofing company. And he always had to carry up twice as much as anybody else did on the roof. And he had to do twice as much as anybody else did. And if somebody talked about they slid off the roof, he had slide off on purpose <laughs> to prove that he could do it and not be hurt. Now, I, I remember a bunch of these guys went to see the first Rocky movie, right? Rocky come out. They came home. Now, Mark is, is saying, I can do a hundred one-hand push-ups. I can do more than a hundred. And these guys say, no way. Mark, this, this is a movie. No, come on. So he got down and proved he did 105 one-hand push-ups. You know what? I walked in a few minutes later and I didn't believe it, so he did it again. I mean, the extremes this guy to go, you know what began happening to his body? His muscles started pulling his joints apart because of the things that he would do to try to prove, you know, his strength or his ability and to get recognition. Okay, so there, there were some good, uh, good came out of this. Mark underwent some dramatic changes. But, uh, but the, now I'll tell you what, I, I, one of the fear motivations I've had has been exasperator and how I would, the areas it would show up in would be like time. If Donna asked me what time it was, um, and somebody said, well, let's see, it's uh, 8.21, I, or, well, yours says 8, what, 8.13, 15, 16. If somebody said it was 8.18, I'd say, no, it isn't. It's 8.18 and 45 seconds. And it took me a long time to realize I did that. Anytime somebody would ask a, about time, and Donna would tell, she would say, well, it's about 10.40. I'd say, no, no. It's not ten about 10.40. It's 10.42 and five seconds. 
You know, and Donna's going, what is the deal going on with you? What is this all about? And so we be, I began, you know, and I didn't see this was going on. She, and after a while, she'd begin to say, uh, this is exasperated for, no, it's not. <laughs> not either. Why are you doing that? Well, because, because it's, it's, you're, you're not right. It's, it's not 1042. She said, well, it is according to my watch. Well, your watch is wrong. <laughs> See? Now, I come by this pretty good. My dad was an extreme exasperator. And it didn't matter what I said, he disagreed. He'd say, it won't work. And he and I used to have a lot of conflict. Um, as a matter of fact, when I went into the ministry, uh, he said, it'll never work. You can't go into the ministry. You'll starve to death. And I was bound and determined I wasn't going to starve to death. That's not true. God called me. He said, well, you know, you better learn something else just in case. I said, there's not going to be any in case. And then it would go. Well, what you know what he was wanting? He was wanting me to give recognition to who he really was in my life and appreciation for him as an uh, an authority figure that God had placed there that had instilled a lot of things in me and I wasn't doing it. I was not recognizing that. And what he felt was happening was I was moving away from that and didn't appreciate. So uh, he became a Christian later. He still had some, he still had this exasperator in him for a while. So you know what I learned to do? Not only did I learn to tell him I appreciated some of these strengths that I saw, but I would come over and I'd talk to him and I'd say, well, Dad, I feel like this is what God's saying. Now, I don't know if it's ever going to work or not, but I, you know, I know God uh, can speak to you and give me some insight. You know, and, so, and he's like, wow, I, really? And I said, yeah. I said, you've, you know, you've lived a lot. You've had a lot of experience and I'm just... I know there's wisdom there. I, what do you think about this? Oh, well, and he'd just start talking. After we'd get through, he'd say, you know, I think this is a good idea. He said, I think this will probably work. Well, I had to learn some things to do that with my dad. And what happened, we, I began to see some of this fear as an exasperator decrease in his life also. Because we started talking about this. But it it had flare up in all these different times. Didn't matter what you said, he'd say, "Well, it can't be that. It has to be this." Well, I see. I have that tendency, especially with Donna and I. Uh, she'll say something, and why do I have to disagree with that? <laughs> why do I have to say that? I I mean, I I know where our position is. I know who I am. What is going on here about this thing? And many times what it causes is strife and conflict that Satan wants to get his foot in to destroy. Because where strife is, there every evil thing is able to come in and manipulate. See, so that's many times what Satan would like to do. So that's, that's part of this, uh, this uh, exasperator fear. The third one is the appraiser. <clears throat> and this person has a fear of a loss of structure. Fear of a loss of structure. And they here are some of the, 
the words that would go along with this. Absolute, accurate, accountable. They can be looked at as antisocial. They like the words actual, exactly, precisely, perfectionist. Uh, they're afraid to receive many times from people. They're very good when they're dealing with things. They're excellent bookkeepers. But many times they don't deal with people the same way. They want people to be accurate, precise, specific. But people aren't like that. Do you realize that most people have idiosyncrasies and they don't fit? Yeah. Not everybody is always precise and accurate. And when somebody gives you their word, you know what? They may not always fulfill it exactly, precisely, specifically. Now, normally what happens, you'll find an appraiser goes to buy something. And he, of course, he has to deal with a salesman. And salesmen are hardly ever appraisers. Hardly ever. Usually salesmen are relators. And, and they have a relator fear. And so here this salesman comes out. And he's never accurate, never precise. He doesn't care. I mean, he's just, you know, he's relating with this guy, and this guy is wanting all of the information. He says, well, I, I'd like to buy this. Uh, tell me about it. The guy gives him, well, it's sort of like, and he, not sort of, exactly. <laughs> tell me the things about this. And so he sort of begins to tell him, and, and the problem is he's sort of doing it. And then he says, well, how much is it? He says, oh, it's around 5000 He said, not around. I want to know exactly how much it is to the penny, including tax. Don't give me this stuff without tax. I want the tax included. And then he says, well, can I buy it? And he says, well, we'll have to order it. Oh, no. He says, well, when will it be here? Well, about three weeks. Not about three weeks. What day is it going to be here in the morning or the afternoon? So what he'll do is he'll get all of the details. I mean, he loves details. He'll get all of the details that he can, but he won't buy it right then. Now he'll go home, and you won't see him for three or four hours. Because he'll go lock himself away and he'll analyze all of these details. And now he's ready to buy, but there's nobody there to sell it to him. <laughs> okay, the appraiser likes structure. They want to know who's in charge. They want to know what the parameters are, what's expected of them. What can I, okay, give me the, tell me about it. They, if they don't have that, you talk about insecure and fear. Well, that's been another area with Donna, the appraiser, fear. Now, guess what? I have none of that. <laughs> she married a guy that's an extreme relator. And, and I don't care about structure at all, period. The least structure, the better. See? And she wants all this structure. So to me, going overseas is wonderful. And so I would just find out where we're going. And Don would say, where are we going? Well, we're going there. Well, who's going to meet us? I don't know. Somebody will meet us. <laughs> what do you mean somebody will meet us? Where are we staying? Oh, I don't know. They'll find a place for it. What do you mean they'll find a place? <laughs> now, I mean, it goes on and on, you know, and I'm... She's asking me all these detailed questions that I don't really care about. <laughs> but I learned to care about them, I tell you what, because if I didn't, we'd have this conflict all the time. Yeah. 
So now I try to find out all of the details I can and tell her. But the problem is, there's still never enough detail. <laughs> but, but at least now that's something she and the Lord deal with. You know, so part of this thing with, with uh, us, God puts us into these situations where we have to face what's going on with the fear that he can set us free and pour in the faith. And she can give you story after story after story about how God has done that in her life. And I can tell you how I've started asking all kinds of detailed questions. And I begin to give it. Now, my father, see, was an extreme exasperator appraiser. Not only did he think it wouldn't work, but he knew that, that I didn't have enough detail or information. And especially when it came to finances or money. I mean, that just sent him up the wall. Now, see, for all of our married life, I, th I think we've had a salary, I, uh, I think, about six years out of our 28 years of marriage. The rest of the time, no salary. Dad said, how are you going to live? I said, God's going to do it. What do you mean God's going to do it? Tell me, how much money are you going to make? I said, haven't got the faintest idea. Well, how much did you make last year? I'd tell him. How did you do it? Don't know. God did that. What do you mean God did it? God, come on. So a after going to seminary, he said, now you're going to get a church, right? Now I'm going to start one. What? How are you going to get money doing that? Well, you don't. You just kind of start and trust God. He said, well... <sighs> said, I don't understand. This is crazy. <laughs> and he said, what are you going to do uh, to get money? I said, well, I'll work a little bit at doing what? I said, whatever. He goes, what do you mean, whatever? <laughs> yeah? I, just, I mean, my dad would just go crazy see, over there. I mean, he's got this idiot son that's doing this stuff. He said, I mean, you spend all this money to go to to go to seminary and then go to graduate school and you, you don't even know what you're going to do? He said, son, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> of course, I told him, I said, God, I said, Dad, you just don't have any faith. And he goes, what do you mean? I do too have faith. <laughs> These two opposite views. Well, and then, then what was worse is we get the church really going. He said, Oh, great, now they're giving you a salary. I said, well, we're leaving now. <laughs> what are you going to do? We're going to go start another church. Oh, no, you can't do this. So then when I started a counseling service, because I'd also been trained as a counselor, he said, well, at least you're going to do something and make some money. And I said, well, I forgot to tell you, we're not going to charge anything for the counseling. <laughs> he said, it doesn't work like that. I said, I know that's what they told me in, in graduate school, but God said, don't charge any money. He said, what? Well, how are you going to live? I said, same way we've always lived for the past 10 years. He said, well, it doesn't make any sense to me. And so we did for the next 15 years. And God supplied, even though you didn't charge, better than it could have been if I'd have charged. And it blew Dad's mind. You know what happened? He, uh, my father is is with the Lord now. Died a couple of years ago. And I think it was the last trip that we were on. Before we left, we went over to see him. 
visit with him. We were praying with him. And uh, Dad said, you know, he said, God's really, God really is doing this in your life, isn't he? He said, this is what God's doing. And he said, I don't understand it at all, but you better keep doing it because that's God. And I'm going, man, he went through such a dramatic change, I just couldn't hardly believe it. Now, so I, I see the results of what can happen, how God can begin to transform those areas of our life and remove the fear and fill it with the grace. And that's what we're looking for. He did give you more information. I gave him more information. I gave him more details. I'd find out all of the stuff on finances I could and tell him all about it. And if we'd do that, I wouldn't see him for two or three hours. He'd be in the other room figuring it all out. <laughs> and, and usually I couldn't get it figured out, so I'd give him all the details and all the finances. He'd figure it out. He'd come back. He said, praise. He said, this will work. And he'd tell me why. I said, thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. I, because I thought it would, but I didn't know. Other times he'd come back. He said, no, there's a problem here. I'd look and I'd say, yeah, you're right. We're not doing this at all unless God, I know God said it. And he says, yeah, you better be sure God said it. And then guess what? He'd agree with me and we'd pray and he'd agree in prayer. See, so, I mean, there's some interesting things that you begin to learn about this. Okay, the relator fear uh, has a fear. This person has a fear of a loss of relationships or a fear of rejection. Okay, here are the words. Ridicule, respect, receive, responsible, completely social. This person likes people. Hardly ever are they accurate or precise. I've had to learn to do this. Believe me. <laughs> I learned to be accurate and precise. Uh, the person has a need for recognition. They can need popularity. They look for acceptance. They react to people's responses, and they can receive from people easily. If, if you look at a person like this, if you're not careful, you may think how they're responding is love, but it's not. They're doing it out of, out of receiving something for themselves. Love, you're not doing anything for yourself. It's to give totally, with no recognition, no strings attached. And so if you're doing all of these things with people, in view of how they respond to you, and they accept you, and they approve of you, and they recognize you, that is the relator fear. That is not love. But it may easily look like that to people, that you're so loving. But you know internally. Now, a lot of these people are relators. If in school, in high school and college, they were the cheerleaders and the captains of the football team and everything. And it's like... They would do everything so people would accept them. And if you didn't have a problem with your identity, you would do it so you could keep relationships. And I didn't have a problem with whether people accepted me, but I'd hate to lose relationships for any reason whatsoever. And so you'd almost do anything just to keep the relationship. And I discovered God said that's not the way he works. Interesting thing about God, he created us. He loves us. We, he's the one who initiates life with us, but he won't do everything to keep the relationship. He says it has to come through Jesus. If you don't do it that way, I'm sorry, son, but you're going to lose out in the end, and it will be horrible. 
and God isn't this this fellow that says, well, let's just wipe it all out and we'll have ultimate reconciliation where everybody's reconciled no matter what you do. He doesn't do that. He is not out to get us to accept him and give him jollies because we think he's such a wonderful guy. That's not why he's doing this. It comes out of a love for us that he's pouring out. He doesn't need us to tell him he's great. See, that's that's a different thing. So I begin to see that that was an area in my life. I had a a uh, a fear of losing relationships. Now, I can trace it to some things. Uh, I was adopted when I was a day old. Uh, my biological parents were never married. The father was killed in the war and never came back. The mother was... 15, when she gave birth to me, her mother was in the hospital having uh, their 15th child. So they couldn't keep two during that time. So guess what? I was chosen to be uh, given away. Praise God. I am so excited about that. I don't think I could have stood it being raised with 15 other people. <laughs> just, just knowing who I am and what's happened to me. And I see that was part of God's design for my life. It was not an accident. But what it did is it, it bred in there through the pre-birth rejection experiences, a spirit of pre-birth rejection. And then what it did is bring in this fear of a loss of relationships. Although I was raised as an only child by older parents who loved me, never rejected me at all any time. And yet here was this struggle with this. And so God has shown me where it comes from, what it's about, and what to do. Now, I still don't like to lose relationships. <laughs> but I'm not going to do anything just to keep from that occurring. Now, one, one thing that I saw God did. Uh, when, when we started the church in Napa, we started with... Uh, I think there are about eight couples. And these eight couples got really close together. And uh, God really dealt with things in our lives for about a year and a half, two years. The church grew, but basically what happened is this covenant really developed between us. And we decided we would always be together for the rest of our lives. But see, that's not really what God's view was. And we decided we'd always be together and God's going to do these great things. After the church got so far, why, God began to separate everybody and send us all kinds of different ways. And I'm going, you can't do this. This is awful. Ugh. And there are some people that we really didn't have contact with for about eight, ten years. And I'm going, that's death. I, God, I, I, you, it was devastating. But you know what happened? God reconnected us later. Once we learned something, he wanted us to learn. That he's God, not us. And he's not just saying we're going to stay together constantly in our safe little environment that we created. He does this for support reasons in order to do something with us out there. Now, all of these people, guess what? They're in ministry, some of them overseas. That was one of the first reasons why I went overseas to do some ministry to the to those uh, that couple and do some counseling. And guess what? One thing led to another. Now, God's restored all of those relationships differently than we ever thought. 
and we're still together, but separated by thousands of miles. We don't see each other every day, don't talk sometimes, maybe once or twice a year, but the relationship is still intact because of the Lord, not because of what we can do. So I've kind of got through that. I don't have such a fear of losing relationships anymore because I'm beginning to see it from God's eternal perspective. You know, we don't have to be together every minute to have the relationship, and guess what? We're going to be together in eternity. Hey, that's good enough, Lord. That's great. Okay, so what, what I begin to see with me, I had a lot of the relative fear and the exasperator fear. I just can't find anything in the fatalist fear, and there may be just a little bit of the appraiser, but not that much. Donna had the fatalist fear and the appraiser fear. Maybe a little bit of exasperator, not much. Hardly anything doing with the relator fear. We were opposites in a lot of ways again. <laughs> and guess what happens? My fears fed hers. <laughs> hers fears fed mine. She said, I want the structure. No, oh, don't hem me in. <laughs> See, the relator doesn't want structure. Feels like that'll cut off relationships. Well, now I accept structure to a degree. But I sure like it when there's none. See, I can I can function freer without relationships, I think. I mean without structure, I think. But Donna helps me to get kind of back together and the structure works and now what I do comes out better. So do you have any questions about these particular areas at this point? Okay, let me let me tell you, here's the other thing that I've seen. The exasperator, if you're operating really high in exasperation fear, some people looking at you may think that you're functioning in the motivation of prophecy because of how you have to say it, because of what you're saying and you're trying to correct something, but what's the purpose behind what you're saying and what's the correction? Is it for your benefit, or does it have to do for their benefit? There, there's a difference. At times, the person that's motivated by teaching, if he's operating the exasperated fear, it may look like the motivation of teaching because he's constantly questioning, analyzing, and he can become very critical about what you're saying. He doesn't think you're right, and he's He's testing all of your information. Well, it could be the exasperator fear rather than the teaching motivation. It depends on why he's doing it. Is he doing it so that you can recognize his knowledge, his information, what he knows, or is he doing it so that he can present the truth and you can see more of the information? Is he fi trying to find out something that he doesn't know so God can use you? Or is he trying to tell you that you're wrong, you shouldn't recognize me? Okay? person operating as an appraiser uh, may look like an administrator because they want structure. They want everything in order. Now, the difference is if you're doing it so that you feel better and more comfortable, that's not the motivation of administration, that's the appraising fear. You're trying to organize things so that you feel comfortable rather than do it for the common good of the group, for what God's trying to accomplish for the whole 
uh, goal and purpose. The giver can also be operating out of the appraising fear rather than out of the motivation of giving. Because what he's wanting to do is to organize himself and everybody else so that the funds need to be available for the areas of ministry. But if he's doing it so that he's afraid no, that none of the money will be there, if he's doing it because he has a fear that uh, God won't provide and that you're going to do something wrong, then that's coming out of the motivation of the appraiser rather than out of the giving motivation. And if, if you begin to kind of see this, it can begin to give you some insight onto where you are and set you free. The relator, uh, if you're operating in, in a high degree of the relating motivation, it may look like the exhorter. See, because you're getting close to somebody, you're wanting to be buddies and you want to talk and want to get personal and, hey, let's relate. But if you're doing it so that you can have the relationship rather than doing that so that God can minister to them and he can express what they need rather than what you need, then it's not the motivation of exhortation, it's the relator fear that's operating. The same thing is true with the mercy person. If they're getting close uh, to begin to express compassion and to identify with your hurt, are they doing that so that you can recognize them and appreciate them and tell them, oh, you're the only one. Oh, you're so wonderful. If that's why they're doing it, it's not out of the motivation of mercy, it's out of the relator fear that this is happening. And then the, the fatalist, I've discovered, uh, could look like the server. Because what they will, at times what the fatalist will do is he'll go do a lot of things and get them done, but he doesn't want anybody to know about it. Who it is? I don't know. Not, somebody did that. Yeah. Well, that's good. Now, why is he doing that? Is he doing that because the need that they have, or is he doing that out of the need that he knows that he did something, but he doesn't want anybody else to know because if they do, he'll fail and they'll criticize it, tell him that it was wrong the way it was done. So it depends. You can begin to begin to look at this and see how that this, this fear motivation will try to wrap itself around the grace gifts in your life and the grace motivation and begin to abuse them or to send them off course just a little bit. So what you need to do is, as you're doing this, saying, Holy Spirit, will you show me What's happening here? I know that you're gracing me with this, but it's sometimes it doesn't come out right. Other people don't really appreciate it. Well, maybe what they're tasting is the fear motivation. Maybe what that... See, at times when we're, when we're ministering one to another, we don't know what it is, but something doesn't taste right to us. We just, you know, something's not right. Well, what is it? It may be the fear motivation that's operating. Now, I'm, I'm trying to tell you, many times you're not consciously doing this. 
It may not be a conscious thing. You didn't decide I'm going to do this. But if this has been an area of your life that Satan has gained some uh, a foothold in, then he begins to use that to begin to try to destroy or dilute the grace that God wants to pour through your life. So that's part of the transformation thing that you will go through. Do you have any questions about this at this point? Right. Okay, she said that on the exasperator, it says that uh, he has a fear of losing position, but he can receive if he knows his position. Well, it's his position. So uh, what, what's, what that amounts to is if he understands where his position is with you, that you recognize his strengths, his ability, his position, then he's open to receive from. As a matter of fact, uh, I worked with a guy that was that was like this one time, and every day I'd come and he'd start an argument and win it. And then he is my buddy, and you better not say anything about me, bad because he'd attack you. And I mean, he boy, we were best friends in his mind. And finally, I began to figure out that instead of letting him start an argument, I would begin to recognize some of the strengths that he really had, the abilities and the position that, that I saw he had just with me as being a friend. And as I began to do that, he quit arguing. He quit challenging. But he was still, you better, you better not say anything bad against me. Or he would, he would attack. And finally, it, it took a little while. This guy wasn't even a Christian. But it took a little while, but finally I got to share the Lord with this guy, and he became a Christian. And then you begin to see God open up some other areas of his life and do some other things. So <clears throat> what, what I've seen about this, if you're working with people, even in your job, you may begin to see some of these people relate to you. Now, down here on the bottom it says, Communication is the ability to guide your message around other people's blocks. And these are some of the roadblocks that people would have. And if you recognize that, then what you're really wanting to communicate with them, begin to go around that roadblock. You don't have to run through it. Go around that thing so you can actually get across to them what it is you're wanting to say. Many times it's God's love. It's grace that you're wanting to present to them. And so if you know what the roadblock is, just go around it and share it with them. And then later you can help them take the roadblock down. Or they can help you take yours down. <laughs> Which is also what happens. So in, in recognizing these fears, how can, is it developed through um, discernment on the part of those that have asked of God, okay, how do I discern this uh, talking about yourself or another people. Okay, yeah, I think you ask God and then you ask your wife and other people that are close to you. Because usually they can see these things in us clearer than we can. I mean, they're my fear. Part of what fear does is it blinds us, deceives us. And so other people can begin to see that. 
Again, that's, that's another reason why God brings us into uh, a body of people and puts us in fellowship with one another is so that they can begin uh, to see the areas that we're under attack where Satan is trying to en ensnare and trap us. And they begin to help in that area. So that, that's one of the things that helps. Linda? Yeah, I think so. Right, right. Yeah, it is. Um, part part of of these, I think, as you begin to look at them, you may discover all kinds of possibilities. But it is possible for the uh, relator to look like the server. <coughs> well, not just that. Now, one, the other thing about operating in the grace motivation is it brings joy to you. I mean, you begin to experience not not happiness, joy, real joy. And and the difference between happiness and joy, happiness is something that you experience from the circumstances. If everything works out right, you're happy about it. Happiness is an emotion that comes from the circumstantial things going on and you're thoughts about that and its meaning. Joy is something that God gives you that wells up within you. And it's like uh, in the scripture, it's like an artesian well that begins to work within you and it begins to bubble forth no matter what the circumstances are. It says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Well, what happened? The, the joy of, of the Lord and his purposes begin to bubble up within Jesus and looking at the circumstances, knowing the cross, knowing the pain, the suffering, the death he was going through, could not stop the joy from coming out of him. And so, you know, when you're operating in this grace, there's a joy that begins to bubble up within you. And some of the circumstances should say, you shouldn't do this. What's the matter with you? I don't know. It's God. The other thing that happens is... Uh, there's a, an, an, a, an, a tremendous effectiveness in what you're doing through the grace motivations. Now, if you're, let me just tell you, if you do not enjoy and have joy in what you're doing in your Christian life, you're probably functioning with the wrong motivation. And the other thing is if it's not having any effect or you see that there's very little effectiveness in it, then guess what? You need to ask God some other questions. And God likes that. I found out the other, well, a couple of months ago, I was complaining to God about some things and telling him I didn't see why it was happening this way and why didn't this occur. I'd been praying for years about this. Now, God, when's it going to happen? And why, after all of these years, when everything looks like it's just right, do these things have to occur? And it looks like it's all for nothing. Have you ever done that? I find a lot of people recently over the past year or two, that's been happening a lot. And so I was complaining and struggling with this and, and I'm talking to the Lord and basically said, I'm not talking to you anymore about this. I said, what? <laughs> I've never heard him say this before. I said, what? He said, I'm not talking to you anymore about this. I said, well, why not? He said, you're asking me the wrong questions. I said, what? 
He said, ask me different questions. I said, like what? He said, you figure that out. I'm not going to tell you the questions. Oh, so now I've been having to come up with different questions to ask the Lord, which has changed me. So I, one of the things that happened, you begin to get this maximum joy as you function in your grace, and it begins to have a maximum effect. And guess what? You're not weary and tired. You're not all weary and tired. Oh. And I'm so worn out from ministry. Well, it's the wrong thing. Well, you need to reevaluate some things. So if you're having a maximum amount of weariness, minimum amount of joy, and minimum effect, it's probably not God's grace that's working. I mean, you begin to see this. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes, you can have all four of this fear. You may have a lot of one. It, it, it will depend a lot upon uh, your background and your experience as to what it is. You can have a little bit of all four. You may have a lot of all four. There, there could be different degrees of this. They may, they may feel like that. It may, it may appear like that at some times, yeah. Can you? Yes, but, well, don't tell them they're wonderful. Because when you do, they'll take off. You know. Instead, you say, well, that's okay. But, uh, if you have any problems with it next time, just talk to me and I'll take care of it. See, if you, I mean, just recognize what they did, but don't go on and on about it. Say, well, I see you did, that was a good job. But, you know, if, if you, next time if it happens, you can just tell me and I'll do it. If you do that, they won't tell you again. They won't tell you about it, they'll just take care of it. But after, what happens is, after a while of doing that, see, they begin to see this was good. It did work. And the other thing that you're doing while you're doing all of this, if you recognize this in somebody, you're praying and you're binding that spirit of fear that's manipulating and lying and trying to destroy them. And the fatalism that's there. And you're asking the Holy Spirit to set them free and see the good that He's doing and what He's accomplishing in their life. And again, pretty soon, it, the, the, uh, the focus of attention gets off of themselves and it gets back on, well, who's the Lord and what's He doing? And they begin to recognize, well, this was accomplished and I did it, but it was the Lord in me doing this. And then they begin to realize, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I think each one of us will find that we have a weakness here in this area, or one or all four of these areas to a degree. And that's an avenue Satan's always looking for. See, to get into our lives. So we may have to, you, you, if you do, you recognize you take extra precautions to deal with that, to bind that, to close that thing off and open to the power of God to rule in that area. The other thing we have to do is some, sometimes we're motivated to meet everybody's need and, uh, like through serving or through mercy, and yet, underlying that, we're doing that because of how it'll make us feel. Okay, so it has to be for others 
always in view of God, is this what you're saying to do now, at this point in time? Now see, because one of the dangers, particularly say of the server, is that they'll see needs that people have and they'll rush over and fulfill them before anybody, before the other person knows they have the need. And then it causes some more problems. The other thing that they begin to remove the pressure of that need from the individual, and maybe God doesn't want it removed yet so he can get their attention and talk to him about some things. So, I mean, there, there's, but this is true in each one of these areas, that I have to be careful and not uh, solve a problem for somebody and give them steps of action if God doesn't want them to know that yet. Uh-oh. But I may say, yeah, but I can figure that out and solve it. God said, so what? That isn't the issue. The issue is, am I motivating you and telling you to do it now? Fred? Oh, yeah, she was over. Well, on the fatalist, I'm a little bit confused maybe. You say you take full responsibility <coughs> for him, and then the fear will begin to go. Yeah. Now, how does that operate with, a, uh, let's say, a wife who's, trying, who's married to a, uh, let's say, an ex-addict? never wants to take responsibility, okay? And she's trying to get him to take responsibility, but he's a fatalist. Yeah. So wouldn't she be enabling him by taking responsibility off him? Okay, she's not the one that needs to do that. Oh, okay. See, she need, he needs to be relating to another man and working with so this. this yes, yeah, especially in that kind of a setting. That's what it would be. Yeah, the, the wife doesn't need to take the responsibility for the husband, that's always that's always uh, happening, and it begins to reverse the roles, and then everybody thinks that she's dominating, and what she's doing is trying to save the situation, and then what happens? Satan uses that. Then uh, there were several. Ones. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are the life of the party all the time. But they like people. They like to be around. Now, uh, I, I can get saturated with people. You know, it comes a point in time I don't want to see anybody or talk to anybody. But it takes, yeah, it takes a, yeah, for just a short period of time. But it takes a long time for me to get to that point where Donna, it takes her a real short period of time. <laughs> See, and like, like, I mean, for instance, we, we, uh, when we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, we'd saved up all of these uh, extra flyer miles or extra frequent flyer miles. So Donna arranged we went to Hawaii. Well, we know people in many places in Hawaii and have done ministry, so we went to a place we didn't know. I had to promise not to call anybody that I had their phone numbers. And I had to promise that we wouldn't see anybody. Which was, I said, well, I was kind of burnt out, and so I said, yeah, that's okay. So we were for 11 days, but guess, but before we went, I, and we walk along the beach, but I mean, I got tired of doing that after a while. I'm going, I've got to talk to somebody besides Don and I talking, and besides the Lord, I'm, I'm going, I've read and I've prayed and we've talked and talked. I, we've got to get, I got to get around some other people. I mean, that's, I mean, it's just, that's, but after a while, I'll get saturated, and I'll go back, and I just won't talk. 
but what's happening? I'm, I'm, there's something recharging. Okay. One more. Uh, yeah, depending on their motivations, or their motivations are. So you may, you a person may be a law person under appraising, and they may not function much in in the fatalism, possibly, but they may be more just in appraising, and because of that, to them, everything in life is always cut and dry. They want it like that. They don't want any any gray areas. They want everything black and white. They want it to fit. Properly, so you you could lead people depending if they had some of that fear of fatalism. They go, yep. See, I can't measure up to that. I can never meet that standard. I can't do that. And so that to them brings them more into fatalism. See, I mean that's part of what God's grace is. Now God's grace is that we don't have to meet that standard. Jesus has met that standard on our behalf, and what He does is He gives to us. And now because of his life and power within us, he will meet the standard, not us. I mean, you and I do not have to perform to be accepted by God. Yeah. Kind of all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all, all of these would be how sin would work. How sin works like that. Let, let's just pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you are not the God of fear, but you're the God of grace. And God, we thank you that you did not give us any spirit of fear, but Lord, you're setting us free from that spirit of fear, and you're giving us the spirit of love, your grace, the spirit of power, in dealing with the enemy and the spirit of self-control in dealing with us, love for one another. So Lord, we just receive you and we receive your grace and your grace motivations in our life. Lord, we ask that you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you open the eyes of our heart that we can see what you're doing and know the hope to which you have called us and the power that you have that's at work within us. So, Lord, we thank you. We magnify you and bless you. Lord, I just ask that you impart your life to these people, your members of your body, your, your brothers, my brothers and sisters, your sons and your daughters. Lord, I thank you that you love them. I thank you that you have deposited within them the grace that's going to set them free, that's going to minister life to others. And, Lord, you expose this fear that is been penetrating them and motivating them and set them free in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. We bless you. Thank you for the night that we have. Thank you for the safety that we'll have with you. And we thank you that we can have a good day of celebrating and relating to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a good night.